I'm standing in the modern day city of Nazareth, which is the largest Arab Jewish city in the nation of Israel. And this city doesn't look much like the city that Jesus grew up in. It's a large city. Jesus, the town he grew up in, uh, maybe had 150 people, maybe 200 people. It wasn't far from the known main highways in the area. You know that little town that's on the highway that you never turn off to? That was Nazareth. You know, there's an interesting comment about Nazareth uh, in the book of John, the first chapter. Jesus is in the early days of his ministry and he's just picking his disciples, the guys who are gonna be with him for his entire time on earth and then ultimately will be called the apostles in the new church. One of those guys' name was Philip and uh, when Philip heard about Jesus and met Jesus and was transformed by Jesus, he went to his friend Nathaniel and he said, this is the one. I believe this is the one that we've been waiting for, the Messiah. To which Nathaniel replies, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Have you ever read that scripture and thought, what's wrong with Nazareth? It's a small town, hasn't been around all that long. There's no history of it in the Old Testament. Maybe there's some just bad stuff that goes on, but why can nothing good come out of Nazareth? Well, you know what? Philip says to him, come on, I want you to meet Jesus. Nathaniel meets Jesus and transforms his life and he becomes a believer. When we read that story, I think about the fact that we're all on a journey right now. In fact, together we're on a journey toward Christmas. And here's what I want you to do. When you have the thought that how can anything good ever come out of, and you fill in the blanks, my circumstances, situation I'm in, my family situation, I want you to remember Nazareth, because Nazareth tells us that just because it hasn't doesn't mean that it won't. Well, Merry Christmas. Is it too early? Okay, good. Are you ready for Christmas? Everybody got all their stuff together? Well, we're gonna help you. Uh, we're not gonna be your personal shoppers. We're, we're not gonna decorate your tree or uh, figure out your lawn design for lights or whatever, but we are going to do a journey together uh, through different places in Israel, kind of giving an, a picture of what was going on in the first century so that we can understand what Scripture says and apply it into our lives. And I think that Christmas is a yearly reminder uh, that what feels lost, what feels forgotten, what might even feel taken is actually seen, remembered, and valued. And we see that in this city called Nazareth. And we all know from the story that God visited us. Uh, he came and became one of us. The creator, redeemer, enters the world as a screaming, slimy, a baby in, in, a, in a barn, basically, that was underground. That's kind of what the situation was, archaeology tells us, uh, with the smell of hay and animal dung in the air. Um, and so this is how God comes into the world, and the whole world now pays attention to that event during this time of year. And I remember when our uh, 
oldest daughter was about three years old, she asked a horrifying question to us uh, during Christmas. She asked, what's the deal with the baby? Now, she had been to kids' church because I was the pastor, and we felt like gigantic failures, but what had happened to her, even at three years old, she had gotten lost in Christmas presents and Christmas meals and, and Christmas activities, and she had forgotten what Christmas was all about. It's about the baby, right? And it's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to be distracted. But because Christmas comes every year, it is a constant reminder, not just of how, what we've made Christmas to be, but what it originally was. And it originally was a historical event that God didn't just show up to a random person. He actually came and visited a people, a nation, a city. And as the first century writers of the New Testament were trying to, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, figure out how to describe this chain of events around Christmas, they could have used many different words um, that would have been understandable to the people. They could have used the word um, photismos, which was the word for illumination, right? It was the word that described insight into existing truth. They could have used that word, it would have been understood. They could have used the word gnosis. The word gnosis is the word for knowledge, which, which was a description of new truth. And certainly Christianity was introducing new truth to the world. They totally could have used that word. They could have used the word didache, which was the word for teaching, which is instruction in known truth. Though Christianity was new, it was kind of on, it was piggybacking on the truths of the Old Testament. They totally could have used that word. They could have used the word Sophia. What word do we get from Sophia? Wisdom. And they could have talked about life's realities of how God works practically in the world. All those words would have been fine, perfectly acceptable, but they would not have captured the essence, the, cru the crux, the core of Christianity. And so instead, the gospel writers chose the word euangelion, which is the word gospel. The word gospel means good news. And so the word angelion there, what word do you think we get from that? Angel, yeah. So James Brownson says it this way, he's a writer on, on First Century Matters, he says an angel was a messenger that brought news of a real event that had occurred in history and that event having direct and dramatic implications for the uh, listeners of the message. So, so here's what would happen. They didn't have the internet in the first century. I don't know if you knew that. They didn't even have CNN or Fox News. Um, they had no ways of knowing when their king and their armies went out to, to face a, another uh, nation in a battle. They had no way of knowing whether or not that battle was successful, whether or not their country won. So what would happen is when, when there was a battle, there would be an angelion, someone, a messenger, someone who would come back after the battle to the country and say, we won, here's the news. It was good news. This is the word the, the, the New Testament writers chose, and I think it's very important that we understand that. It's good news, not good advice. One scholar said it this way, religion is advice mainly with a little bit of story sprinkled in.
But Christianity is mainly a story with a little bit of advice sprinkled in. And if Christianity is a story and, and it's good news, not good advice, then Christmas is a major chapter in that story. And what we're gonna see in this passage is that God didn't just show up and leave without a trace. He just didn't appear to someone and then take off. He didn't simply create the world and then write a book and then distance himself. God actually came and gave himself fully to the world. God inserted himself into the story. He was born in Bethlehem and he was raised in Nazareth and the good news, the gospel tells us about these events. And what we're going to see in this series is something very core to Christianity and that is this, place matters. Place matters. The mystery of the incarnation, and incarnation just simply means in fleshing, that, that God became flesh, that God dwelt as a human being, that that, that it happened in a place. Christianity always happens in a place. It matters, place matters. Bethlehem, Nazareth, real places. And, and I don't know if you ever do this. Do you ever do the, um, the game, If I Were God? You ever play that game, the If I Were God game? If I were God, so-and-so would be in the White House. If I were God, uh, so-and-so would be my boss. If I were God, I would live in this neighborhood. If I were God, like, we, I, do, I do that. I, I'm sure you do that. Well, I wanna do that with the whole Christmas scene, right? If I were God, I don't know if I would have picked the first century, specifically Palestine, to show up. I don't know if that's what I would have done. I'm, I, I probably would have thought, okay, maybe halftime of the Super Bowl, one of the ones that people watch, right? Uh, New Year's Eve when the ball drops, maybe then. Like somewhere where there was mass media that would be no. I don't know that I would have picked first century. I, I think I would have done a more strategic place. I think I would have picked um, somewhere other than an underground cave, um, uh, you know, in the middle of nowhere. I, I think I may, may have picked the White House, the Taj Mahal, at least a Chick-fil-A, right? Something that people were at. But Jesus was born, listen, in a smelly, dingy, dank barn, basically. But think about that. The king of the universe wasn't born in Rome or Beijing or Paris or New York City. He was born in Bethlehem. And if you were to also then, if I were, play the if I were God game, um, maybe you would even think, okay, I get it, God. You, you want to be mysterious and subversive and and so you, you kind of hid yourself away, but, but once you're born, God, like Jesus, surely you're gonna go to the populace, surely you're gonna go to the big city, surely you're gonna use mass media, but actually Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but was raised in Nazareth, about 90 miles north, and he was in obscurity for 30 years. He was in a nowhere place, but once he started his ministry at age 30, it only lasted for three years. He then um, got out, but then in our text, in John chapter one, he comes back. Uh, how many of you went back home for Thanksgiving? Raise your hand. Hi, be proud, yes. How many are going home for Christmas, right? You can sing the song, I'll be home for Christmas. I won't, I won't hurt our ears with me singing. But, but there's something about going home that's awesome, but there's something about going home that's humbling, isn't there? I remember years ago, um, I uh, had written a book, and um, it was a book for men, 
It was called The Dude's Guide to Manhood. And I, had, I was really excited to get a copy of this book into the hands of my uncles. I, my dad kind of left our family, and my uncles raised me, and they, they really didn't understand Christianity and, and weren't, didn't grow up in the church, so I was really excited to get them this book. But, but the most exciting thing was that I was able to, and, and, and if you're like an obscure author like me, your whole goal is to get a publisher, and if you could possibly get a publisher, and sometimes to get the publisher, the, the way to do it, and certainly the way to maybe sell more copies of the book, is to get somebody famous to write the foreword for the book. And so somehow in the, in the miraculous providence of the God of the universe, I was able to get somebody famous to write the foreword. And, and it, it, he was a TV star at the time. And, and it, it, it was this amazing uh, show that was on television, had a very, like, it, you know, it was kind of highbrow. You had kind of an education to watch it. And it was very it, thick plot. You never knew what was gonna happen. It was called Duck Dynasty. And if you remember Duck Dynasty, And you remember Willie, big beard, headband, Willie writes the forward. Now, this was relevant for a thousand reasons, but for my Uncle Dennis, it was real important because he was a big Doug Dynasty guy. So I sent him a copy. I wrote in it, Uncle Dennis, thank you for helping me be a man and all kinds of wonderful, th true things about Uncle Dennis. And so I got home at Christmas. I was so excited because Uncle Dennis, I'm gonna like, like get to talk about the book. And I said, hey, Uncle Dennis, um, did you get my book? Yeah, I got it. H have you read any of it? He goes, haven't quite got to it yet, which probably meant he never would get to it. He said, but I got it in a special place. I'm like, great. Where's the special place? He's like, the bathroom right between the toilet and the, and the uh, toilet paper. I'm like, well, that's one place to read, okay. Um, but he's like, I put it there because I wanted to uh, be near the toilet paper to remind me of when you were little and I used to wipe your bottom. Because Uncle Dennis perceived a little bit of my pride and arrogance and he wanted to humble me. Sometimes coming home is humbling. Jesus said it this way, he said, a prophet is not welcomed in his own hometown. Jesus is literally not preaching this public sermon. In fact, most of his ministry was not public sermons in foreign places. Most of his ministry was intimate conversations in familiar places. And we are overhearing one of those intimate conversations at the end of John chapter one between Jesus and two men. One's name is Philip and the other's name is Nathaniel. And we're gonna see some principles that he uh, exhibited in these conversations that I think we can apply to us as we think about this journey towards Christmas. The first thing is this. What we see here is Jesus is looking for us in the present. Now, I didn't grow up in church, and I started coming to church right around Christmas time, and I felt so dumb. When you come to church after not knowing, being in church or not knowing the stories, you just think everybody knows it but me. And so if that is you, that's absolutely untrue. There's tons of us that are just trying to figure this thing out. Some of us are kicking the tires of Christianity, trying to figure out the claims of Christ. That was me, and I, I didn't know anything, so I'm hearing all this stuff for the first time, and it's amazing, and it all made sense to me, and I was able to 
see that I needed to stop being my own savior and allow Jesus to be my own savior. I needed to stop being my own boss and allow Jesus to be my boss. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so I gave my life to Christ. It's a great deal. You give him your sin, he gives you his righteousness. It's good news, people. It's awesome. That happened to me, okay? So it happens to me. And then, it happened to you, that's good. Uh, it, it can happen to anybody. It happened to me, and I was so excited. And I was telling one of the older saints in the church who happened to be uh, a teacher I had in high school, I said, man, I've been looking for this my whole life. And, and he was so kind, but he needed to correct me a little bit. And he said, he goes, I get what you're saying there, but I need to tell you something. God's been pursuing you your whole life. He's been after you. Uh, I took my son a few years ago to the pool for the first time where he was gonna be hanging out with his friends and not his dad. Remember that sad day? You remember the floaties and you were there and you went and, and, and then now he's like with his buddies. And so I'm like, okay, we're cool with this, but I'm a little concerned. I gotta find a place at the pool uh, that we, and we got there a little late. So there was only two good places where you could really get a good vantage point of the two pools and, and kind of see what was going on. Because I trusted him, but I didn't trust him. I, 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 the lifeguards were good, but I didn't trust them either. So I needed to have a little bit of control, and so I wanted to find the best place to, to sit so that I could see what was going on with him. Um, and so I looked, and one of the places wasn't available, but the best place is like this little hill, and, and, and there's this tree, and you could like sit underneath it. Um, and, and the only problem was, and you know this from the pool, right? Uh, nobody's sitting in the seat, but there's towels there. So what do you do? Do you, do you just like, well, this is what I did. I saw the towels and I just said, you know what? Nobody's there. They're not here with their son for the first time. I'm taking over. I'm gonna sit here. Now, what, now when I sat down, what I realized was, I could see this pool, but I couldn't see this pool. So then I realized I better do this. Now I can see, okay? And so I was sitting here like this, watching, and I would, I would sit down and read a little bit, and, and then I would uh, kind of walk around and see him, and then I would sit up just so I could see everything. And so over here I see his little buddy Joey splash him in the eyes, and he's doing the chlorine thing. I can't see, and he starts. And then one of his other friends dunked him, right? Hank dunked him. And then I see him getting out of the pool and he starts running this way. So immediately I sit down because I didn't want him to know I was looking at him. And so he comes and he says, Dad, I, I, where were you? Didn't you see? I almost drowned. I'm like, you almost drowned? He's like, yeah, I almost drowned. I, I, yeah. I said, buddy, I, I saw the whole thing. He goes, you can't see me. over." I was like, yeah, I totally saw you. I said, uh, Joey splashed you in the face and got chlorine in your eyes and then Hank dunked you in the water and you got scared. He was like, you saw me? I'm like, yeah, buddy, I saw you. And so when we read this text, sometimes it's easy for us to think that God doesn't see. It's easy to think that we're not like seen, that, that he doesn't know what's going on. But what we see in this text is Jesus saw everything and it wasn't actually Philip that was looking for Jesus. Here's what the text says. Jesus was looking for Philip. It says, he found Philip, and he said, follow me. Now, this seems kind of strange because Jesus would say this thing, follow me all the time to the disciples, 
and they would like drop everything, their business, their relationships, and just start following him. So it's like, what? Was there something in his eyes? Is it like a tractor beam? I must follow Jesus. How does this happen? Well, the text tells us that Philip knew and was from the same city as Andrew and Peter, two of the first disciples. So they had told him about Jesus, right? So he went in knowing. So Jesus says, follow me. And then he sends, in just a second, he sends Philip to tell Nathaniel to follow him. But follow me was a culturally loaded statement. It was rabbi language. A rabbi would say, see what would happen at five years old as a Jewish boy, you would start going to school, it's like kindergarten, and your text was the Old Testament. So you would be studying, reading, memorizing the Old Testament. And you would get up, you know, to about age 13, and you would be bar mitzvahs if you had any Jewish friends, um, and then at that point, you're really conversant in the Old Testament. You, you're able to interact with the stories, the laws, the writings, the prophets, all the major sections of the Old Testament. But then, you know, most kids would drop off at that point, you know, and just kind of go about their lives. But there were certain group of young men around college age who really showed interest and enthusiasm and discipline, and they would present themselves before the rabbi to be an apprentice, and the rabbi would look out at these young college-age men, and he would tell a few of them, follow me. And they would follow him for three years. How long was Jesus' ministry? Three years. So they would follow him for three years. And then once the three years was up, which was a painful three years, testing, feedback, critique, correction, training, and then if they were able to, to make it, then he would say, now, follow me into, into deeper. So, so this is what Jesus is doing with these, these guys. Now, this long, painful process took three years, and yet, sight unseen, Jesus says to him, follow me. How did Jesus do that? How did, how did Nathaniel respond to this invitation as well. We'll look in verse 47. It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed, whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, what's the say, church? I saw you. Jesus didn't need to have a long testing process because he knew his past, which is the second principle. Jesus knows all of our past. Now, I remember uh, reading the Bible. My mom told me to read the Gospel of John when I was first exploring the claims of Jesus. And I got to the end of chapter one, I'll never forget it, and I remember this passage. And I thought, how does he know? See, I didn't have my theology all worked out then. I thought Jesus was just a pretty good guy, decent teacher. But then I started reading, how did he know? Well, he was God, that helps. But he was also a human being. And this is the mystery of the incarnation. 100% God, 100% human being, right? Connected. You, said, you got that one figured out? Me neither, no one else either. It's, it's a mystery, but this is what Christianity teaches. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. It's easy for us to focus on divine Jesus. I know we can't split the nature, but it's easy for us to think of him that way. Sometimes it's hard to think of him as a human being. But he was a human being, and so what if in this moment, 
Jesus is not just with, you know, omniscience, who knows everything, but what if his humanity is interacting here? Have you ever noticed that the people who are more, most compassionate with someone's past struggles are the people who also had past struggles? Have you ever noticed that? Like, aren't alcoholics who are in recovery the ones who sponsor people who are trying to get out of addiction? Aren't those who have suffered abuse that are survivors the ones that go back in and help people walk out of abuse? Aren't those who maybe struggled with poverty the ones who kind of lead the charge in helping people? When you have experienced pain in your past, you're able to help people with their pain, the pain in their present. And Jesus didn't have pain in his past because of his sin, but he had some pain in his past because he was from Nazareth. See, Nazareth was in the middle of nowhere. See, even Jerusalem, like, or, you know, if you were in Jerusalem, that was the big city, that was the epicenter in that place. But people in Rome looked down on you. But even if you lived in Jerusalem and, and you saw this place called Galilee, which is where this takes place, it's kind of the, if you think of it like a state where Nazareth lived, people looked down on people in Galilee from Jerusalem. Even if you were in Galilee, you thought, gosh, I don't wanna go to Nazareth, which is why Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of where? Nazareth. It was a nowhere place. It was that rural community with one stoplight and no chain restaurants, without a Walmart, but a few meth labs. That's, that's Nazareth. That's Nazareth. Which is why it's shocking that the gospel writers 17 times say, Jesus of Nazareth. The first early Christians in the book of Acts, when they were changing the world, their enemies said, those Nazarenes, this was a forgotten place, a nowhere place. And I think one of the most scandalous things about God, I mean, there are some scandalous things when you think about God, when we try to understand that God created everything from nothing, mountains and moons and stars and seas. When you think about God knowing the past, the present, and the future. When you think about God having a very high standard for holiness. When you think about that all those things are scandalous, they're hard to understand. But there is nothing, friends, I would submit to you, more scandalous than the idea that when God chose to come into the world, he came in to a nowhere place and a forgotten people. This is our God. And the text continues, Jesus answered him, I saw you under the fig tree because I said this to you, do you believe? In other words, you good? We good? You got it now? You gonna follow me? And he says, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna do greater things than these. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that Nathaniel is going to, to die on the cross for this? No, no, no. Jesus is deviating from rabbinic tra tradition here. See, a rabbi essentially would say, I want you to follow me and do what I do, but don't go farther than me. There was even some uh, you know, evidence that there was a little bit of thing like a, a, a competition of the rabbis wanted to be seen as most prominent, seen as the, the most uh, gifted teacher, and so they would keep their students down. They, they would keep them in a box so that they would be prominent. And here what Jesus is saying is, 
you're gonna do greater things than me. And later on in the Gospel of John in chapter 14, verse 12, he actually says it, greater works will you do. What does that mean? It means there's gonna be more of you. When God came to earth, he could only be in one place, in a body. But there's gonna be disciples, which is what people who followed rabbis were called, everywhere. And so this tells us something about Christianity. It says, God is not just calling us to follow him to be a little better morally. God's not just calling us to follow him to learn some cool Bible stories. God's not just calling us to follow him to achieve our version of the American dream or to have a nice place for our kids to grow up in a spiritual environment. All those things are good. God is calling us to follow him to change the world. That's what you're invited into with Christianity, to be a world changer. So Jesus is certainly looking for us in our present. In our present. He certainly knows about our, our past, but he has good plans for our future. Speaking of good plans for the future, next week, we're gonna do a legacy offering. You say, what does that mean? That means we are gonna have a chance to give to literally be a part of what God is doing to change the world. God's changing the world right here in our community through the Dream Center. 6,000 patients last year have experienced healthcare for things they couldn't afford, saving lives, mending families. You know, we go to Togo all the time in the work that we do in West Africa. 40% of those folks do not have clean water. Can you imagine? No clean water. We're gonna solve that problem. We're gonna be a part of that solution. Do you know how many families in our community have special needs kids? And maybe they get some help at school, but when they try to go to church, there's no place to help. We're gonna do some expansion to focus on those families. So many good things that we can change the world. Greater things. What does that mean? Greater things. Stuff that we can't do by ourselves, but we can do it together. And I'm very passionate about this offering, and I'm very, because what, what God has done through the ministry of Seacoast helped me. Three and a half years ago, um, my life absolutely fell apart. I was a pastor of a very large church, and I imploded. Um, and I had to forfeit the opportunity to lead that church. And Pastor Greg was on my restoration team, and I'd known Pastor Greg for a long time. And um, after 15 months of tons of counseling and healing, he said, hey, I think your next step of healing is being on our staff. And guys, I cannot tell you how healing it has been to be here, to be under Pastor Josh and Lisa's leadership, to be able to be in, around people who are not competitive and trying to just, to, just kind, sweet people. Nobody's perfect, but I'm telling you, the staff is amazing, and they've invited me and opened their hearts to me and let me use my gifts, and it's been so healing for me personally. And so Pastor Greg and I were talking, we're like, yes, amen, amen. So Pastor Greg and I were talking, and uh, I said, man, what if we did this for a bunch of pastors? What, what if we said, hey, we're, we're gonna be a part of putting spiritual fathers with spiritual sons, spiritual moms with spiritual daughters. What if we just, because I don't know if you know this, pastors are hurting. 
the suicide rate for pastors is skyrocketing. Two prominent pastors in the last year or so have committed suicide, and tons of others are depressed, discouraged. We see this all the time, all the time. And so Pastor Greg and I started this thing called the Pastors Collective, and it's simply a ministry to encourage pastors. And it's a podcast. If you're into podcasts, go subscribe to it. You can hear my story in full. You can hear Pastor Greg's story. We've talked about what God's done at Seacoast and interviewed a ton of other pastors. It's free. If you're bored, go check it out. Um, but, but, but this is what we're giving to. When you help a pastor, I mean, you help a family, but you help sometimes hundreds, if not thousands or tens of thousands of people. Those are the people listening to that podcast. Those are the people when Pastor Greg and I travel that we minister to. We're changing the world. Greater things. And I remember at one of these training events, Pastor Greg, who, as you know, just drops these little wisdom nuggets all the time. And you're just, they're so disarming, aren't they? Like he's making some joke that's really not funny, and then he just drops this little bloop, this little, this little truth bomb. And here's what he said at one of these events. He said, the best way to be at peace with the past and to be engaged spiritually in the present is to trust that you have a good future. And he said that to me all the time. And on the podcast, and when he uh, interviewed me, he, and, and he said, Darren, do you believe you have a good future? And then I, you know how you start to talk and then you cry and then you pretend like you're not crying, that's what happened? And I was like, yeah, I think so, I want to. Can you help me? Will you be my dad? I mean, I don't know what I said, but something like that. <laughs> Here's the deal, you have to believe you have a good future. That is hope, that's what Christmas is about. And so some of you are in Nazareth right now and you feel forgotten, you feel alone, you feel insignificant, and you feel passed over. You feel like you're trying to get God's attention. You don't know that he can see everything. You do, you, you're not feeling his attention. You're not experiencing his focus, but I'm here to tell you he sees, he knows, and he cares. Some of you feel like you've been in Nazareth your whole life. Maybe you were a middle child. Maybe your family didn't love you well. Maybe you always felt like you had the smarter older brother or the cute older sister and you just always felt like, I don't matter, I'm, I'm insignificant, who am I? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yeah, Jesus came out of Nazareth. And because he came out of Nazareth, he can meet you in your Nazareth. You're not forgotten. You're not alone. You're not insignificant. He cares. He sees. He loves you. You're not forgotten. We're going to sing this song, I'm sure, in these few weeks. And, and by the way, you're going to hear this song probably uh, you listen to Christmas music already? You, you're like, how can I not? It's on every single station now. The marketers have figured it out. We like Christmas music. I was listening to the heavy metal station last week and they played a Christmas song. I'm like, what is going on? It's about that money. 
but you're going to hear the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means, do you know what it means? God with us. God with us. So based on Pastor Greg's ministry to me, based on this text and based on that song, I came up with just a very simple prayer that I would like you to consider this season, especially if you're in Nazareth. It's real simple. Here it is. God is near me. God is with me. God is for me. Would you say that with me? God is near me. God is with me. God is for me. Let's say it again. God is near me. God is with me. God is for me. Some of you need to know each, li each line is pregnant with meaning. Near me. Which means he's always been around. He's always been looking for me. I thought I was drowning, but he could see. He's been near me. One of the prayers that you can pray along with us is, show me where you were. So when you felt abandoned, despised, forgotten, asking that. He's been near you, but he's also with you, with me. He's not just near, he's with. And then he's for me. It's one thing for God to be around, because sometimes you're tempted to go, man, that happened to me. Look at what they did to me. But what if you could switch that language a little bit? Let's switch our prepositions. What if it's not something happened to me, but something happened for me? That God is using it for good, even evil things. God is near me, God is with me, God is for me. Use this prayer, use this prayer. Friends, Nazareth is God's word that you may feel unseen, but he sees. You may feel despised, but you've been accepted. You may feel alone, but he is close. And I want you to experience that. I don't want this just to be a head thing. I want it to be a heart thing so that it can be a life thing. So let's pray and ask God to do that. So Lord, we ask in your kindness and grace you who knows all of our past, you who knows every hurt, all of our sins and where we have been sinned against. You've been at work even before we were born in our lives. And you have a good future for us. So we ask you to breathe hope into our Nazareth. We ask you to breathe life into the parts of us that feel dead. And we ask you to, to help us have the best Christmas we've ever had, not because of presents, not even because of people, but because we see you and we know that you see us. In Jesus' name, amen.